Welcome back. This is Angelo Gonzalez. I'm coming into you live from the library here at Middlebury Institute of International Studies. This is Mr. Gonzalez's neighborhood. Today, Dr. Jason Scores will be discussing how we can actually use sustainability. His work is mainly to demonstrate that interdependence of a healthy ocean and a strong economy. Jason Scores is the director at the Center for the Blue Economy here at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. Our conversations primarily focus on environmental and natural resource economics, sustainable development, and how that plays a role not only in public policy, but how we engage in each other on these issues. So without further ado, Dr. Jason Scores. It's Wednesday, November 20th. And we're back. This is Miss Radio Podcast Group. My name is Angelo Gonzalez. And our special guest today here is uh, Dr. Jason Scors, here coming in from the Center of Blue Economy in Monterey, California. Uh, so yeah, just a little update for our listeners to, if you don't know, uh, Mr. Scores completed his PhD in Agricultural and Natural Resource Economics at UC Berkeley. Uh, he has a focus on environmental economics and policy, uh, international development, and behavioral economics. Upon graduation, he became a full-time faculty member here at uh, Middlebury Institute of International Studies here in Monterey. He also teaches courses in environmental and natural resource economics, ocean and coastal economics, and behavioral economics. And uh, he is the director of the Center for Blue Economy, uh, which provides leadership in research, education, and analysis to promote a sustainable ocean and coastal economy. Uh, so, without further ado, thank you. Uh, My pleasure. Good to be here. Yes, sir. So, uh, we'll just cut to the chase, right? So, as a student at Miss, one of the first, I think, chances I got to see your name was working at the front desk. And there's a whole host of books right there in McCone uh, from uh, faculty members. And I saw your book, uh, What Environmentalists Need to Know About uh, Economics. And so it leads me to the first question of the day. That was published back in 2010, and a whole lot has happened, uh, sociopolitically speaking. What have been your ruminations just in the past, uh, during the current administration, and uh, what do you think in terms of moving forward um, as like a, I guess, sort of speak, software update from, from that book? Uh, what do you see? Sure, sure. So I said a couple parts. First, you know, the, 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 a lot of environmental economics really has stayed relatively stable. It's not that there haven't been advances in new research, but the, the key insights of environmental economics that we really need to build a sustainable kind of human society, civilization, are really the same that they've been for 40, 50 years. It's not, so what I like to say is the innovation, innovation is in the implementation. And what do I mean by that? Well, the, the world is upside down, and, 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 and it's upside down because the toxic substances, toxic pollution, whether it's greenhouse gases or lead or mercury or sulfur dioxide, 
people don't have to pay the damages that they do when they emit those substances. And therefore, that's why you have this weird thing in the world where toxic cleaners cost 99 cents at Costco and the green eco products cost double or triple the price. Where pesticide-grown food that destroys you know, habitat and poisons the water is cheaper than the stuff that's organic. So the world is upside down. The people who are destroying the planet get a free pass and you have to pay extra to not destroy the planet. And obviously I'm using the planet in kind of generic terms here. Obviously the planet can survive way past us. I mean our, our civilization on the planet. So the job of all people, but particularly people who study environmental policy, is to turn the world back right side up. And the way to do that is to make the things that are toxic and damaging have to pay the true cost. So just a quick analogy, you know, if you crashed your car into someone's porch, right, you would assume that you would have to pay for that, or at least your insurance would have to pay for that. You would never say, hey, your porch was just in the middle of the road. Sorry, that's just, that's just a deal. You just deal with it. You know, every now and then your porch is going to get run into by a stray car. That's how most companies talk about pollution. They just think that they can just put anything in the air that kills people, that cleans global warming, that kills species, and somehow it's just a normal doing business. But we don't think like that in any other sphere of reality. We always have strict liability laws, but we just don't have that in the environmental realm. Real quick on the administration, the current administration is an abomination, morally, politically, socially, economically. It's just an absolute abomination and a disgrace and a stain on this nation and this world. And that includes the environmental realm. Just about everything they're doing in that is horrific. And the damage they're doing is going to take decades to undo. And that's the point. They want to do maximal damage. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to work very hard next year to make sure we have a change of administration. Excellent. And I, I remember seeing somewhere where the nexus in, in, in implementing that change, right, really comes at the current status quo, right? And so you were talking about, you know, in 2020, particularly being a, 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 a year where we could possibly pivot away from the policies that are being currently administered uh, under the current administration, uh, looking at that, I wanted to look at the Green New Deal, right? So here's something that was proposed by uh, a freshman congresswoman, um, and it gained some sort of traction, but not enough to, you know, obviously become legislation that was uh, passed. Um, do you think the reiterations of the Green New Deal, uh, what, what would that look like? Yeah, so a few comments on that. The first thing to, to, to be aware is, so, you know, Alexandra, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who put forth that, she, her, her Senate co-sponsor was Senator Markey, and he's been in the Senate for a while, so it wasn't just a freshman congresswoman who, who proposed it. And then the Sunrise Movement had a lot to do with this. The Green New Deal is a, a framework. So the first thing is it's not legislation. So what people don't realize is it's not an actual bill. It's a framework. It's a very ambitious framework, and I think a really outstanding framework. Just as a side note, the Center for the Blue Economy, we're building the kind of Blue New Deal component of that. So we're actually working you know, quite vigorously on what will the ocean part of the Green New Deal look like, because that's going to be a big part of it. And so you know, maybe that's a future podcast as we develop that. We could just talk exclusively on that. In terms of the Green New Deal, it's a great framework. Obviously, 
the right wing has been lying about it and smearing it because that's what they do. They're, they're beholden to the fossil fuel industry. And so they're just going to lie and smear. That's what they do. That was to be expected. But it's been actually pretty popular overall, even with all that smears and lies. And obviously the Trump administration is not going to do anything with it because they're, they're doing the opposite. They're trying to plunder and destroy as much as possible. So this will only have a chance of being enacted in some shape or form if if the, a new administration comes in in 2021 and, you know, on top of that, also control the Senate and the House of Representatives. It's going to really need that trifecta. So it's going to be a pretty heavy lift. I think it's doable. And I think it will be a priority for the next Democratic administration. There's some of it you can do through executive action. Some of it you can do through the regular budget process. But I don't think there will ever be one massive bill. It is going to be a piecemeal kind of effort that will also be at the state level. Right. And I was thinking about, you know, I mean, the origins of that bill, I guess more so like the inspiration mm-hmm. obviously stemmed from the New Deal. Uh, that was mm-hmm. that was Roosevelt legislation. Uh, and that really packaged so many different components. Right. And, you know, I'm reading a book by uh, this author, Richard Hawkins, and it's The Great Convergence. And it talks about um, how we're living in this this new globalization where you see the rise of new industrial countries. And so that coupled with, with you know, our multinational corporations that are sort of offshoring manufacturing jobs, large scale employment opportunities elsewhere, coupled with automation. I think when I think of the Green New Deal, I see the opportunity that presents itself, you know, where, you know, we live in the United States and there's been some exceptional innovation that has taken place both, you know, um, technology-wise and public policy-wise. And I think that is something that, with that framework, you can only move forward, right, and build something positive for for large-scale employment. Um, And so moving forward on that, you mentioned, like, the state uh, also playing a key role. Um, I know living here in California, I'm originally from Texas, so you don't necessarily see that with, you know, fossil fuel industries being backed up over there. But moving to California um, and just operating, you know, within a research-based capacity, how, how has uh, that atmosphere proven to be uh, for yourself? Yeah. So a couple quick notes. You know, first of all, Texas has a pretty big renewable energy uh, portfolio, and some of that was actually put into effect under when it was uh, Governor Bush. So, you know, as much as Texas has a lot of bad politics and a lot of regressive reactionary politics... On renewable energy, they have been reasonably well, even under um, Republican administrations. So I, I'm, a, I'm a reality-based person. You know, I will fight Republicans when they're trying to destroy humanity and, and the planet. But if they get on board, like, and you know, all of them who want to uh, get on board, like, they're on the, on, they're on the team. Yeah. And so there are, some, there, are, there are some good ones in the mix, and, and some in Texas in particular. Coming back to your point about, you know, the state policy, California has been really progressive we just got bested by New York passed a climate bill that is probably more ambitious than ours, but they haven't put it into you know into motion yet. But it would be it would actually be ahead of California's, and that's great. We want to race to the top. We don't want to race to the bottom. But right now, California, no doubt, is leading the way. One of the best parts of this, which relates to the Green New Deal, is taking a, a, a moment to reflect on the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal, what it does, is a kind of an environmental social contract. It's not just telling people what they have to do for the environment, what they have to do for climate change, but it has, as you mentioned, all these job guarantees, healthcare guarantees, income guarantees, 
And the reason being is, and people have figured this out in other parts of the world, the environmental policy can't just be, we're going to raise prices and make life more difficult for you in order to save the future of humanity. You have to get something now. And the Green New Deal really learned that. California has taken those lessons too, and they get generate about a billion dollars from the cap and trade uh, policy, um, which is to kind of limit carbon emissions in the manufacturing and electrical sector. And they're using a lot of that money for environmental justice. So they're using a lot of that money to, to buy solar power panels for low-income communities to help clean up the air in places that are, you know, that have been, you know, traditionally, historically in the most worst air quality and the kids are getting, you know, high asthma rates. So it's, it's California in some ways has kind of stepped up on this environmental justice right at the right in the kind of in the lead up to the Green New Deal, which takes that to the whole whole nother level. Right. And I mean, when we think sustainability, I know the, the first thing that comes to mind for, for most people is environmental sustainability. Mm-hmm. But there's actually, you know, social sustainability, econo- economic social uh, sustainability. So there's there's different components and they're all sort of interwoven and in like a policy like cap and trade. Could, you know, there's that interconnectedness to having a policy like that. And then how it helps people who are disadvantaged mm-hmm. uh, by a ter- particular uh, socioeconomic status. Um, and, I mean, there's a lot of power in that, right? I think by connecting our public policies to really deeply embedded societal issues, uh, you can sort of knock two birds with one stone, so to speak. Um, Three two birds with one stone. Yeah, <laughs> in that case. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to knock any birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think, uh, so we're on this highfalutin' political rant here, but let's dial it back. So what led you to, you know, work in this field? What does sustainability really mean to you? How did, how did that story come about in your own right, right. life? So, you know, I, I've been in, interested in this kind of policy for a long time because I think it's what you just touched on, which it kind of touches on all the different realms, right, is... You know, I always joke like, you know, environmentalism is a weird term. How would you not be an environmentalist? Right? Mm-hmm. What you like dirty air? You like species extinction? You like global warming? You know, how could you not be an environmentalist? So it's always baffled me that somehow we have an environmental camp and then others, because to me it's always been everybody should be on board with this. And so a lot of what I'm working on is how do we get everybody on board? I mean, because to me, you know. I grew up in a kind of a pretty liberal household. I grew up in a pretty diverse area in New York, and it's always been to me about, you know, justice, equality, and just on you know the, the the challenges of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition trying to get along, and that's kind of what sustainability is, really, right? It's like we're all trying to figure out on this spaceship Earth that we're flying through the universe in, you know, how do we not really commit collective suicide, which is what we're doing now. And so I don't really see any other project more important than this. And so it kind of was just my ethic from a very young age to kind of get involved with the big challenges. Right. And that reminds me of like an old, uh, another, uh, you know, we're reading in uh, development theory about uh, the waves of feminism, right? And how like, I want to say there was a second wave that really was more universal and then there was a critique of that, right? In terms of, well, there's different types of feminists, right? And 
how do we stray away from universalism and really make it applied to, to situated places where, you know, this is really affecting adverse communities. And, you know, coming from the East Coast, coming from like densely populated areas, it's like, how do we find that collective balance, you know, uh, where, you know, you improve quality of life while also improving the environment? Um, were there any key authors that like inspired you or people? I, I remember living in Martinez and like living right down the street from, you know, John Muir's house and like oh, being right. just, uh, going on field trips to uh, Muir Woods and stuff like that and just little things like that that like sort of took off that, that knowledge base, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, funny because, you know, when I think about it, the most probably the most powerful book that affected me was the autobiography of Malcolm X and that's not an environmental book. But what always struck me about that book was his real, his real kind of awakening and enlightenment to see that he had been misled for so long in his, um, in his training and his teaching. And he really came out of that right before he was killed by the people who he exposed, you know, for the universalism that he really saw at the end. And, and that was the powerful message to me. And so in some sense, there is a quality of that that I think about. I mean, I really do think... Right now, there are clear enemies. I mean, I, I have enemies, and there are enemies of human progress. But at the end of the day, I, I, I hope that they can be brought into the fold. You know, my, my, my goal is to defeat them politically, but then to bring them into the fold, because everybody's going to benefit. And, and I do think, even though these are going to be hard-fought battles, I do have a sense that, you know, we can't get everybody on board. So, you know... It's funny, growing up in New York, you know, I didn't have a ton of nature-based, you know, living. Um, so it wasn't that that really motivated me. To me, the, the environmental stuff has always been more the, the human component, right? That how do we get along in this world in a healthy, kind of prosperous way? And now, of course, I also, you know, I live here in Santa Cruz and I, you know, enjoy nature and, you know, and, and all the beauties of it. But it was really the human side that kind of got me motivated. Right, and like finding that that uh, incentive for, I mean, you you clearly have it, but for for giving that incentive, you know, um, I know there's a book at the library, and I gave it to my girlfriend. It was uh, Zero Waste by mm-hmm. uh, Bo Johnson, and I haven't even flipped through it, but you know, something like that where maybe it we're getting away from policy because every day working America maybe not working on environmental policies, right? Uh, they might be, you know, activists or aware of the issues at be, but to really hone in on, you know, not only self preservation, but self preservation in the human sense, you know, of the collective. And how do we do that in in little bite sized ways, you know? I know that uh just looking at your profile you like cook vegan meals for example and Little things that like help. Um, I don't know if you know anything about zero waste or mm-hmm. how. What are your thoughts on that? Is it yeah. feasible? So a couple things. So it's so the big thing for me that I've really been kind of advocating for on the personal side is the move towards plant based diets. So I helped with a you know within a larger context here at the administration. We did the first plant based graduation reception last May. That was a huge success. It was the first to our knowledge in the entire United States. So. It really put the Middlebury Institute on the map. Uh, it was, again, we had an international fair just showcasing the amazing world. That's the big deal to me. If you want to do anything 
on the personal. There's nothing you can do that's better for kind of environment, for ethics, for justice, for climate change than, than switching to a plant-based diet or at least making a transition in that direction. So that's where I get, because you know, there's a million things you can do. The zero waste, that kind of stuff, I don't, I don't really like those frames, to be honest, that much. I get it, and there's an attractiveness to it. But look, the reality is life displaces life, right? My life here means some other lives are going are gonna to be sacrificed for me. And that's just reality. And a, and a bear is some lives are going to be sacrificed for the bear. And the spider is going to eat some lives too. And so everybody takes up some space. The question is, how do you do it? Are you inflicting you know, significant harm and violence on other creatures? Or are you doing it in a way that you, know, you can you know, rest easy? Hey, I'm taking my space, but in a conscientious, mindful way, and I'm not leaving the world in a degraded state after I'm here. Mm. Right? So that's really the thing to me. The zero waste, again, I get the, the marketing aspect of it, but I don't really believe it kind of theoretically. And so I don't really, I don't see it through that. My thing is really minimizing violence and the, the animal agriculture system is an incredibly, incredibly cruel and violent system that I really think no human should have a, a part in. Hmm. Uh, and, and then I think it's just trying to leave the world in a, in a, a more richer state when we're, when we're gone. Those are, the, those are the frames that I use. Right, kind of like planting a seed and... Whose tree shade you know you won't be sitting in you know, but it'll exactly. be for your children, your grandchildren. Exactly, and um, that can be knowledge or ideas or art or a company you started, whatever it is. But it yeah. can be many forms. You you mentioned um, who was the gentleman, uh, Malcolm X. You mentioned yes. Malcolm X, and immediately that brought me back to you know, awakening class consciousness, right? And putting an end to structural violence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, I mean, of course there's documentaries out there that the moment you see them and you see the ag industry uh, for, what it, for what it's worth in terms of how it goes about um, its treatment towards, you know, pigs and, and cows, um, it's, it's horrific, you know, when you see it. You're just like, oh, wow. You know, and you get goosebumps and you're just like, and there, there is a choice that, that, that is given to you as like a viewer of that type of material. Um, do you think there are other ways to explore? I mean, because I know documentaries, they can be highly influential on, a, on their viewership. But in terms of uh, dissuading the structural violence that you see within the ag industry, what are some ways that you think? Might be, be might be positive for yeah. society. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't show lots of videos in my classes about you know the horrors of animal agriculture. You know, I show a little on the kind of the scale, but I don't show. I mean, you know, you could spend hours, and I I think there's almost a there there's a form of violence of inundating people with violent images, right? And I'm not I'm not trying to increase violence in the world. I'm trying to do the opposite. So the, the fortunate thing is, especially at this day and age, you can really focus on the affirmative almost exclusively, which is just all the amazing products, all the amazing cuisine, all the amazing health-affirming uh, dietary practices, and that's what we did at the graduation. Again, we showcased you know, the international plant-based cuisine, and just a little side note on that, there was some pushback originally from some people in the student council and students, you know, 
This is, even though they had never had any input ever in graduation, and most of the graduation food sucked for year after year, somehow when we did it plant-based, they wanted to, you know, know the whole menu. So there's a little irony there. But the irony upon irony is once we showed them the menu, they said, oh, why didn't you just say that? Right? Because, again, maybe they were thinking carrot sticks and celery sticks. Once we showed them this huge international menu of this amazing food, they're like, oh, wow, that sounds pretty good. And so that's, that's kind of the funny thing is there's all these like negative preconceptions that people have. So my whole thing is just at the, in the smallest way possible, we do, you know, uh, we do a barbecue every semester for the, you know, for the student body. We always do it plant-based, and I bring the Beyond Burgers, and we bring, we, we bring you know, a lot of really good plant-based food, and people love it, and people have a great time. That, to me, is the work. I don't, I'd rather do that than show people a video of animal cruelty. I'd rather just show them, hey, it's pretty easy. There's all these good products out here. You can kind of have your cake and eat it, too. Yes. That's the beauty of this day and age. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's interesting because three years ago, I remember making the road trip from Texas to California. And, you know, at the time, I was predominantly eating meat. And uh, I would get in these legendary, like, battles with my girlfriend about this. And she's vegetarian. Uh, And now, you know, like, she'll cook me some of these, like, um, I guess tofu nuggets. But Mm -hmm. they... They kind of, they're like chicken nuggets, mm-hmm. you know, and there's this nice, beautiful sauce on it, and it's like, uh, she's like, you, you want to try this? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm like, oh, damn, that's really good. What is that? And she's like, oh, it's like tofu nuggets. I'm like, no way, you know? I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, are you kidding mm-hmm. me? And then to to top that, I mean, I remember that irony going through that last last semester with the, the graduation, and I, I was actually, I was the guy that was in on the Zoom conference, and I asked Carlo Ferri, I was like, hey, um, what's, what's actually on the menu? <laughs> you know, let's right. cut to the chase. What, what, what food, what's food serving here? And everyone laughed, you know? Right. And then he started talking, and like, you could, you could like hear a pin drop, you know? Everyone was like already salivating, you know? Like, right, right, right. It, this is right. going to be a good meal, you know? Right, right. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be honest, it was definitely by far the best meal ever served at graduation. I've been to 30 <laughs> plus of these. So that's the irony, right, is that it was actually an improvement. It wasn't even just staying the same or a diminishment. We weren't making a sacrifice for sustainability. We actually did the best food we had ever had, and it was 100% plant-based. And so whenever I think of innovations in terms of public policy and, like, making that shift uh, to creating, you know, uh, a different, you know, status quo... It really does come at, at, at like what framework are we looking? What lens are we looking? And how can we alter that to yeah. to increase the, the the level of positivity for that alternative switch? You know, and it it could be for anything, um, and you know certainly you know the center of blue economy is at the the center of that, um, and you see that on the international scale. You see that on the national scale. Um, I'm working with Dr. Colgan uh, right now on um, creating like an academic uh, journal uh, for the Institute. But um, I know just as a quick little wrap up, looking at your projects, I, I was curious to get your word on um, the upcoming project on uh, smart cities and cutting down on gassy cows. <laughs> Tell me, give me a little, because this is not a project I'm directly involved with, so give me a little uh, background on that. Yeah, so the CBE, uh, Center of Blue Economy, is finalizing agreements for several new projects. 
uh, is one is with the High North Center for Business and Governance uh, at the Nord University Business School and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They're going to examine uh, the blue economy and smart communities in the Arctic. So this study, what it's saying is it's going to investigate new marine and maritime industries, how the blue economy relates to develop, community development, and the concept of smart Arctic cities. So, and then it doesn't really say much about, oh, here we go, at the very end, a second upcoming project. This, this, okay, just forget everything I just said now. <laughs> okay. Because uh, I'm not really interested in smart cities. I'm okay. curious about gassy cows. Okay. And what, yeah, what's the, what's the, the, the project The here? gassy cows. I think I know what you're referring to, but I'm not entirely sure. So it's with California Strategic Growth Council led by Moss Landing Marine Laboratories. This is with the algae, feeding the algae to cows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this one really caught my attention. It's a pilot project to take culture seaweed and feed it to cattle yeah, yeah. to reduce methane emissions. So the yeah. seaweed is going to like... Yeah, so I, I can speak on that now that I know what you're speaking about. So, so one of the big, biggest emissions, greenhouse gas emissions of cows is the, the methane they emit. Mm. And, and so there's a lot of people saying, are there alternative feeds that we can feed them that will reduce the methane emissions? And there is some preliminary research that says that different types of seaweed um, products put into their feed can do decrease methane emissions. That could have a huge impact, and that's where that rant's coming from. I, I personally tend to, you know, it's kind of the Band-Aid. It's much yeah. better to just not have the cows in the system. Right. Obviously, that's not going to happen, you know, for a long time, although I don't think it's going to be a lot sooner than people realize when, when, when the meat industry is actually going to be on, on a big decline, but we, we can get to that if you want. So this is a kind of a, a kind of a bridge, you know, a, a, a transition plan. So if we're going to have cows, if we're going to have massive amounts of cows, can we at least reduce their methane emissions? Seaweed, seaweed aquaculture could maybe help if we mix it their feed. Right, right. And like you said, it's, it's just a Band-Aid. Um, I think obviously we would love to see alternative measures uh, implemented. But I think sort of to wrap up this grandiose conversation about blue economy and everything that you guys do um so last week on netflix there was a series uh decoding bill gates mm -hmm. and it was talking about the many different projects that he was working and there's three episodes the first one tackling diarrhea right mm -hmm. the second one tackling polio mm -hmm. and the third one tackling renewable energy mm -hmm. the third one was a particular importance in terms of the high risk but high reward with um, nuclear nuclear Fission. and it's the kind of thing where they had looked into it and realized that there was this need for an update on the technology that was being implemented at the current facilities for nuclear energy and they were about to go I think the company was called TerraPower and they're about to build a plant in China and just as about they were about to do that, the deal was cut because of the China-U.S. trade war. Mm -hmm. No, So no technology transfer, effectively. Mm -hmm. right. And no transfer of that technology to, to build this plant. So something that, you know, I think moving away from fossil fuels and doing that in, in, in a manner that allows for the transition, because we're, we're not only you know, moving energy base for the people consuming that energy, but we're also moving, you know, people's livelihoods within the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, you know, the, the, the head honchos of the fossil fuel industry would not want to see that to happen. Mm-hmm. But systematically, how do we, how do we restructure that, that transition? Yeah, so a couple quick things. You know, first of all, I'm, I'm not, you know, I just want to see us get to, to, to you know, a decarbonized future. So if, if nuclear is part of the mix, then that's fine. Yeah. I think that the, the key things here are, A, you have to deal with the financial liabilities. Right now, nuclear is just not economic in the United States right. because of the financial liabilities and the subsidized insurance. So the people who are big proponents are going to have to figure out a new economic model. It's just the reality is solar and wind is just cheaper than most nuclear nuclear power. We have existing plants. We might as well keep them online because those are zero carbon. So I have no problem kind of extending their life. There's also some of these moonshot technologies that Bill Gates is trying to do and kind of new types of nuclear reactors, smaller fission reactors. That's great. He's exactly the type of person. Throw in his billions into that and maybe, you know, get lucky and we do get some new technological breakthrough there. So I'm totally fine with that. The reality is there's some pro-nuclear people who just don't, they just can't wrap their head around. There's also the, the, the nuclear waste issue and, you know, that, you know, and the financing issue. They just kind of want to wave a magic wand and go away. It's not going to go away. They have to actually confront that. And I haven't seen them do that in a really substantive way. On the issue of kind of the transition away from fossil fuel jobs and all that, a couple quick things. First of all, modern economies are always shifting jobs around. There's 60 million people who lose their job or change jobs in the United States every year. Uh, and then if you do that globally, it's hundreds of millions of people. We have industries dying and then runs being reborn all the time. Right now, there's more people in solar and wind than all of the coal industry in the United States. It's not if you include you know, natural gas and oil. It's, it's not as much, but they will eventually transcend it. So it's not that I say we shouldn't have transition plans and help for people in those industries, but you know, this happens all the time. This isn't anything new. And, uh, and, you know, and, and in fact, a lot of the proposals in the Green New Deal and other proposed, you know, plans have explicit money set aside to help these people, right? right? So I don't think those are the big challenges. I think those are a lot of times the red herrings that people put in. Oh, what are we going to do about the couple hundred thousand people and, you know, oil or gas? Those are a tiny fraction of the jobs, and they're a tiny fraction of the jobs that are lost for a Dozens of reasons every year, so we can we we can deal with that. Though though those aren't 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 big challenges, right? So, what would you see? Um, since those are the red herrings, those are sort of the the symptoms of that structural change to renewable energy. Do you think it's just a matter of just changing this administration to really make that a reality? Because I know state based, right. it's it's right. definitely moving forward yeah. here in California, yeah. but. Federally speaking. Well, look, the, the reality is, first of all, it's a global problem. So it's, you know, so we, if we're talking globally, this this, this this whole set of things which are probably beyond the, the scope of this conversation. In terms of just the United States, the Republican Party is the block for climate <laughs> policy. I mean, yeah. we literally have these lunatics who say climate change is a hoax, who are doing everything they can to do the bidding of the fossil fuel industry under any circumstances, to sell off all our public lands, take the, you know, demote species off the Endangered Species Act, you know, do offshore oil drilling, reduce safety regs, reduce methane requirements for natural gas. I mean, it's literally the, the, we have coal industry lobbyists running the Environmental Protection Agency. So this is like just lunacy, pure lunacy. And the Republican Party sees there's, there's no indication that they're going to change on their own. They're not going to get enlightened one day and do the right thing. They have to be defeated defeated and, and, and so I think a, a, a solid alternative administration will go a long way just as Obama 
did a lot and was making a ton of progress before we had this administration. I think the next Democratic administration will do a lot. But ultimately, eventually, we need everyone on board. You know, right. right. My, my hope is, is that the kind of the lunacy on the right will die off. The way for it to die off, though, is not just to be nice to them. Right. People think, let's just get around a table and be nice. And Mitch McConnell and the fossil fuel lobbyists will have a kumbaya moment. The way for them to come around is to defeat them consecutively and really badly. Make it so that they say they will not come back to power unless they get real on the serious issues of the day. That's the way we'll get bipartisanship. So I think some people have a very naive view of bipartisanship. That if we just put out the information and extend a hand and, you know, Joe Biden, go have a drink with Mitch McConnell and they'll work it out. Like, that's just bullshit, right? That's never going to happen. The way you get people to change is you make them change. And the way to make the Republican Party change is to give them just you know, historic defeat after historic defeat until finally in the rubble of their party, they go, wow, you know, maybe going off on the deep end wasn't good for us. Let's come back to the to sanity and come back to the table in good faith. That's going to take a long time and we don't have a long time. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fights because I think truth and, and justice will win. But it's gonna be a it's gonna be a serious battle. That that is for certain. And for our listeners, this is this has been very enlightening. I, I must say, in terms of the gravity, you know, of of shifting platforms, right, and putting forward, you know, the the carrot, putting forward the incentive to really get the other side of the aisle to see the promise that you know the policies that you know we both know are very possible in the near future. Hopefully. Absolutely. And yeah, anybody in any program who wants to come talk to me about these issues or, or any others, uh, just come, you know, send me an email, come to my office hours. Excellent. Dr. Jason Scores, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. And that about does it. So thank you, listeners, and um, have a great day. You've just heard an episode from Mr. Gonzalez's neighborhood here in Monterey, California. The episode had been recorded earlier this fall semester. So there you have it, folks. After a long battle, truth and justice will hopefully eventually win. If you would wish to get in touch with Dr. Jason Scores, please just send him an email. Uh, you can reach him at JSC. O-R-S-E at M-I-I-S dot E-D-U J-Scourse at Miss dot E-D-U And go ahead, schedule an appointment and have a similar discussion. Uh, the more discussions, the better. More likely than not, I think deep down in the heart of it, I've become an optimist after out of all these conversations I've had here uh, with the podcast Um, I do wish all of you listeners out there chiming in, thank you for listening. I really do hope that this has been encouraging and that uh, this platform, this ability to produce podcasts has stimulated your thinking and has allowed for you to open your mind and discover something completely different from your own worldview. That is my hope. That is my dream. 
And ultimately, I don't know where I'll be in a year from now. But I take each and every day, like the sands beneath my feet at Asilomar Beach. I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but <laughs> there it is. Um, I'm still here in the library. I'm still reading and I'm still writing and I'm still learning. And as crazy as it is studying at a place like here, Middlebury Institute, um, where everything's crumbling and it doesn't seem like the future looks bright, <laughs> you still have to create your own positivity at the end of the day. And hopefully somebody will see your light. Um, hopefully I've been a light to you. Hopefully you've been a light to me. And like that, we can create a better world for tomorrow. Um, thank you. And that's all, folks. <laughs> Talk to you soon. <laughs>